Happy Halloween, everybody. I hope everyone listening is set to have a fun and safe Halloween. On my end, I was lucky enough to have a few parties to go to and come back with a sinus infection. So yeah, if you go out tonight, wear more. It is definitely flu season and we're not too far removed from the pandemic. Or are we removed? I'm still fuzzy on what's official when it comes to that. But if you decide to stay in, there are seven NBA games popping off tonight and we're going to look at that. We're also going to look into the story of former high school basketball standout Akira DaCosta, discuss what's going on with the Warriors, decide are the floodgates closed in LA, and we're going to figure out when scary hours are actually going to start in Brooklyn. But before we do any of that, we're going to look at the headlines rolling around the basketball world. Starting off our headlines, the sophomore release of Seattle Storm megastar Brianna Stewart's Puma signature shoe, the Stewie Ones, are already set to release just one month after the Stewie Ones dropped. This release will be another colorway that is set to highlight Brianna Stewart's disruptive nature on the court. The Stewie Ones Causing Trouble will be the name, and they are set to drop on November 4th and will retail at $140. This is a big deal because the Stewie Ones are the first signature shoe by a WNBA player in nearly a decade. Going over to the NBA, but still hints of WNBA, Matt Barnes is back in the headlines for his stance against trans women playing in the WNBA. In an interview with Vlad TV, Barnes admitted that he does not believe that trans women should be permitted to play in the WNBA, saying, quote, I don't like that. I think to each his own. You want to be whatever you want to be, that's cool. But to me, whatever you're born, you should play in that space. You see the swimmer and all that stuff. Again, I'm pro, make your choice, do you. But sports is a different beast. I think you've seen a trans fighter too. I don't like that, end quote. The swimmer Barnes is referring to is Leah Thomas, who swam as a male for Penn University and then transitioned to a female and shattered records in the swimming world. As a woman for Penn, Leah Thomas ultimately won a national title. Barnes maintained that he believes in a personal choice for people to do whatever they feel with their bodies, but stood firm on his belief that sports are a different beast, saying, and I quote, if you're born a woman, you should play women's sports. If you're born a man, you should play men's sports. Brittany Griner's appeal of her nine-year Russian prison sentence was rejected by a Moscow court last week. Griner had been playing basketball in Russia during the WNBA offseason for nearly 10 years, and in January, she was detained at a Moscow airport for having cannabis vape cartridges in her bag. Griner pled guilty on August 4th of this year and asked for leniency. But Russia is pretty ruthless in prosecutions, whatever the crime is. Get this. In Russia, 99% of cases earn a guilty verdict. Griner's best hope is some quiet diplomacy between the U.S. and Russia. The White House already proposed a prisoner swap to get Griner and a U.S. Marine back over here. In exchange, they offered a Russian arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death, who is currently serving a 25-year prison sentence here in the United States. But things between the countries have been this cold since the Cold War and Russia denied the initial offer. On to some less heavy but still disturbing news. Kyrie Irving is under fire for posting a film and book that is believed to have some anti-Semitic views. On Thursday, he shared a post that linked to a movie called Hebrews to Negroes Wake Up Black America. The movie released in 2018 and is based on a 2015 book of the same name, and the film's description says it, and quote, 
uncovers the true identity of the children of Israel by providing the true ethnicity of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Ham, Shem, and more. Find out what Islam, Judaism, and Christianity has covered up for centuries in regards to true biblical identity of the so-called Negro, end quote. Following Brooklyn's 125-116 to 116 home loss to the Indiana Pacers on Saturday, Irving denied he was anti-Semitic, but he did not apologize for a social media post. He said, and I quote, we're in 2022. History is not supposed to be hidden from anybody. I'm not a divisive person when it comes to religion. I embrace all walks of life. You see it on all my platforms. I talk to all races, all cultures, all religions. The San Antonio Spurs released their 2021 first round draft pick, Josh Primo, after allegations of Primo publicly exposing his private parts to female staffers. Attorney Tony Bugsby told ESPN that he has retained a woman who worked for the San Antonio Spurs and has alleged Primo exposed himself to her. Bugsby also represented multiple women in the sexual misconduct lawsuit against Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. Primo told ESPN that he will now focus on further treatment for his mental health. Because the two correlate, I guess. Okay, for this week's Big Money Outlook, we're going to look at the NBA signature NBA Pick'em. To play NBA Pick'em, you have to just go on to NBA.com or download the app. Answer questions on NBA games each day. Tune in to see how your pregame picks play out. Come back during live action to answer live questions. They get you bonus points. Build up your points towards awesome weekly prizes. All of this according to NBA.com. Tonight's NBA nationally televised game is the Indiana Pacers versus the Brooklyn Nets. The NBA pick on bet for the night is if Kyrie Irving will score more than 26 points. A simple yes or no is all that is needed for the bet. On my end, I would bet yes. With the outside noise surrounding Kyrie Irving, I expect for him to have another stellar shooting night. Kyrie thrives in chaos, and he's already shown that the Pacers have no answer for him. Saturday night when he dropped 35 points on their heads. On NBA League Pass, Sacramento Kings take on the Charlotte Hornets at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The question of the night for that matchup is which team will get 15 points first. I would take the Kings in this one. In their four of their five first games of the season, they have been the first to 15, and the Hornets historically are defensively challenged. The Philadelphia 76ers take on the Washington Wizards at 7 Eastern on NBA League Pass. Their pick'em questions are who will make more threes, Tyrese Maxey or Bradley Bill, and which team will be first to 15. The Wizards are coming off a back-to-back where Bill played 35 minutes. I don't know about y'all, but I was a shooter. Legs are everything when it comes to shooting, and heavy minutes plus an hour flight doesn't help that. I take Maxi to make more threes, but I take the Washington Wizards to score 15 first. The Wizards are young outside of Bill and generally get off to good starts. Their problems arise in the second half and in a back-to-back expect for them to fade, but that ain't a part of the bet. Wizards to score 15 first, Maxi to hit more threes than Bill. The Toronto Raptors take on the Atlanta Hawks at 7.30 Eastern and the pick'em questions are identical who will be the first to 15, and who will make more threes, Trey Young or Gary Trent? I take the Hawks as the first to 15 and Young to make more threes. Trey Young has a solid record against the Raptors, while Trent is generally used as a decoy. Milwaukee versus Detroit at 8 Eastern, and the question of the night is, will Jaden Ivey score more than 14 points? And I'd say no. 
The Bucks' defense has been a torture chamber, especially for guards. Memphis Grizzlies take on the Utah Jazz at Jazz at 9 Eastern. Which player will score more points, Desmond Bain or Laurie Markinen? I take Bain. He's more versatile as a shooter and a ball handler. He's also had large scoring outputs this season. The final matchup of the night is tipping off west between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Houston Rockets at 10.30 Eastern. Question of the night, who will grab more rebounds, the Clips or the Rockets? I got the Clippers. The Rockets are young and, quite frankly, undisciplined. You see it when they're ready to fight each other. Undisciplined teams don't execute possessions properly, which includes boxing out to rebound. The Clippers, on the other hand, are full of vets and are considered a contender. Look forward to the Clips to out-rebound the Rockets and win comfortably. Moving on, we're going to look into what's going on in the Bay. The Warriors opened the year as a lot of people's favorites to repeat as the NBA champions. They look great in preseason, and the promise of their vets mixed with the upside of their youth made many believe that this year's squad was the deepest team in the dynastic era. Every day, a part of that confidence has shipped away. And it started with the punch heard all over Twitter. Draymond Green dropped Jordan Poole on a Warriors practice days before opening night, leaving everyone, including Warrior players, to speculate what was going to happen next. And well, the answer was a big fat nothing. The Warriors dealt an undisclosed fine to Green, and he was back being his regular triple single self. But the Warriors haven't recovered. Green is the defensive anchor of this team. His ability to quarterback the defense and play the role of puppet master is undeniable. He appears to make split-second decisions on switches and traps that makes the defense just as potent as the offense. Those split, those split decisions, however, aren't being received like they used to. You can see Draymond Green make the same reads and call for those switches and those same run and jumps. But now that the teammates, they aren't switching. The jump isn't coming. The help isn't helping the helper. It's almost as if the chemistry on that end has been lost in translation. So are the defensive prowess gone? Defense is built on chemistry just as much as offense. Everything is on a string. So when one person is off, the entire defense is done. While the Warriors' on-ball defense looks good, the help side rotations don't exist. Because of this, teams are getting wide-open looks and the Warrior games have turned into a scoring contest. They are 3-4 and four in such matches. Is the bench overhauling biting Bob Myers in the butt? Perhaps. The Warriors lost five key contributors to their championship bench mob, including their best on-ball defender, Gary Payton II. They replaced that unit with their up-and-coming talent, including former lottery pick James Wiseman. While with the babies coming, with babies comes growing pains. The second unit has been painful to watch. They look like an AAU team that doesn't know what to do when the ball is reversed more than once. This isn't to say the struggles are all the bench's fault. The starters have been underwhelming defensively too, but they can outscore people. The bench, not so much. We've seen this with the Los Angeles Lakers. They had a championship squad and they let key members walk away and they've been poverty since. Granted, the Warriors kept much more of their core than the Lakers did in 2021. And their young core is better than what Rob Palenka dragged in on veteran minimums. Granted, it's October and the Warriors have shown plenty of flashes of being the team to beat. The lack of defense is alarming considering they have so many vets who are considered first out of the Hall of Famers. Up next, time to talk about the Brooklyn Nets. And man, are they a conundrum. They make it hard to be a hater. 
Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving have amassed a large amount of haters in their years. And if I was one of them, I'd be bored. Like, imagine waking up, ready to watch the Nets downfall, and being given every cliche that's been said about them, every predictable conclusion, from Ben Simmons not wanting to shoot, to Kyrie Irving causing off-course spectacles, down to Durant iso ball killing ball movement. It's lame. Like, if you're going to jump to your death, do a flip. Like, could Ben at least be able to be the on-ball bull that made him a defensive player of the year candidate? Can Kyrie have one, just one peaceful media session? Can Kevin Durant move without the ball? He is in his 30s. The Nets struggling is still, I guess it's still fun for some people. The team that was manufactured through backdoor deals, getting smacked by organically grown squads, is satisfying, but it's better when they evolve while struggling. Seeing the same thing over and over is dull. It makes for a cruddy villain. And that's what the Nets are at this point. Same deficiencies, same talking points, same results. They'll be out before the Eastern Conference Finals and the cycle will continue. And honestly, I'm bored with it. Speaking of another situation, just about every talking head should be tired of talking about. The floodgates may be closed in La La Land. The LA Lakers finally got their first win of the season and proved a lot of people wrong, winning one game in October. Laker fans, I wouldn't get my hopes up though. They hit open shots, yes. But the players who were hitting shots, they were shooting well beyond their career averages last night. If you expect Lonnie Walker to bail you out night to night, you're going to have a long season. One thing that did come out was that the second unit with Russell Westbrook coming off the bench is great for success. It is a recipe for success. The second unit looked more in sync and they had fantastic pace. And that's because Russell was able to be on ball. Russell Westbrook and LeBron together is, it's like putting, I wouldn't say fire with fire because at least that gives you something hot. It's just putting the same thing on the court and expecting it to work. Russell needs the lane. He is not a shooter. He needs the lane wide open with shooters around him. He needs to be able to slash, get to the rim and kick it out. LeBron needs the exact same thing. So now you have one or the other ball watching on the wing or in the corner ready waiting for a kickout since neither of them are stellar jump shooters those kickouts are are resulting into bricks and it doesn't help that well actually helped LeBron he's arguably one of the greatest players ever so he's gonna have the ball in his hand he's not going to have to sacrifice himself and be the one ball watching now he's on ball so he's the one still getting able to drive and Russ is the one waiting in the corner for kickouts. And that's why we see all these shots that are banking off the side of the backboard because that's not his game. You want him to play was not his game. It was, didn't make him an MVP. So putting him on the bench, yes, it's a blow to his ego, but it helps his game at its core because now he gets to have the ball in his hands. He gets to slash, gets downhill, make those kickout passes, get his triple doubles with out looking foolish on these jump shots. And he had some kooky jump shots last night. The man just can't shoot. And teams are going to be able to scout for that. But coming off the bench, he looks better because the game is more surrounded around him. So that that helps. That's the one positive I saw out of last night. That wasn't a fluke. That that made sense. So usually I have a guest. And by I say usually last week, the first episode I had a guest. And following this week, we'll have guests and 
the end of the podcast will usually be me talking to somebody within the basketball world. But since today is Halloween, I decided we're going to tell a story, but this isn't a spooky story in the sense of fantasy. It's a real life story. And it's about something that's very important and that happens in our world often. Halloween is a time to revel in the fictional horrors we like to consume. And for some, it's an excuse to wear less and go out more. You have those people who take it serious and spend tons of money on realistic, grotesque-looking costumes because it's fun to be a monster for the night. But true terror of reality is that monsters don't always look grotesque and they aren't mythical. They look like an everyday person, like you and me. And in real life, monster stories don't just end at the two-hour, 43-minute mark of a movie. They don't, they don't just end. They have everlasting effects on every person's life they touch. This is true in all facets of society, and sports has always served as a mirror to society. In the case of Akira DaCosta, that mirror showed a terrifying reality of many women in the United States. Akira DaCosta was one of the nation's most coveted girls basketball recruits in the class of 2018 as a six foot two forward with speed and athleticism. Four years later, she is recovering from being kidnapped and sex trafficked for nearly half a year. To fully understand the tragedy of this story, you must understand who Akira DaCosta is. Akira is a 22 year old woman who has dreamt of being in the WNBA since she was a child. Those dreams were always in reach as she was the best player in the state of California at her age since she was 11 years old. And while statements like that are usually subjective, in this case, in the case of DaCosta, she received her first Division I scholarship offer from USC at age 11. Yeah. And the sixth grader got what most seniors pray for. And to top that off, the coach of the USC women's basketball team was Cynthia Cooper Dyke, the four-time WNBA champion who was arguably the best player to ever grace the WNBA. Akira told the San Francisco Chronicle, quote, I wasn't even thinking about college. All I could think was, wait, Cynthia Cooper knows who I am? End quote. The promise Akira showed as a middle schooler skyrocketed once she got into high school playing for St. Mary's Stockton. Her high school basketball team was ranked in the top 10 in the country, making multiple state championship runs. She played on the Nike Elite Girls Basketball Circuit with the Cal Stars, lacing up with Sabrina Nescu and winning two EYBL championships. She was a Team USA gold medalist and a McDonald All-American. She basically lived the high school version of the 2K My Player and then signed to play for Baylor University, getting ready to play for my fave, Kim Mulkey, and complete the... 2K my player career college version. I say all this to say she was a shit. But the baddest players have bad days too. And what everyone saw on the surface was the baddest player out of California. But was, but what was festering inside was a teenage girl with bad anxiety. And that anxiety took Akira by the throat in college. On multiple occasions, her mother had to call her AAU coach asking her to give Akira pep talks about her lagging grades. There were times Akira admitted when the pressure to succeed left her shaking and short of breath. When she committed to Baylor, her inner circle was worried. Akira was someone who needed hands-on support, 
but was joining four other five-star players in the nation's top recruiting class. It wasn't a formula for success. Knowing Akira, she didn't want to disappoint people, her AAU coach, Lenani Nawa, said. She hid a lot of stuff. With her going to a big school like Baylor, you kind of wonder, what if she goes through tough times? Who will be there to pick her up? Her former AAU coach said. And the answer was no one. DaCosta underperformed and fell out of the rotation. She wasn't close to her teammates, and unless she scheduled an appointment, she couldn't speak to Kim Moki one-on-one. She fell into a deep sadness that was overlooked as Baylor won the national championship. She ended up transferring to Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, where she showed out in early practices. However, she had to sit out due to the NCAA transfer rules. Then 2020 hit, and the world shut down. COVID-19 suspended the college season on the court and sent students home off the court. Akira returned to Stockton where her anxiety and depression clouded her. She attempted suicide in April of 2020, overdosing on pills in her bedroom. Her girlfriend, Roshanique Jasmine Parker, was her support at the time. And while DaCosta was slipping into a dark place, Jasmine was the person keeping her from diving. In October 2020, about two months after she returned to LMU, Akira was leaving practice when she saw an Instagram post on her iPhone that read RIP Jasmine. Her girlfriend Jasmine had been dropping off her friend in Fresno when she was killed in an early morning shooting. She was 27. A month before LMU's season opener, Akira went back to Stockton, heartbroken and basketball career in shambles. She decided to transfer again, this time the only school willing to take a chance on the McDonald All-American was an NAIA school in Southern Ohio. Once she got on campus, she realized that she was not given a full scholarship. Only 20% of her tuition was covered. She dropped out. Once she returned to her home, she then found out that she was adopted as, as a child. In that moment, everything that made up her identity seemed to wither away. Home and hoops, both seemingly not what she believed them to be, both gone. She just wanted to belong, wanted to be somewhere. She slipped into a transient lifestyle, stuffing her backpack with clothes and vanishing for days at a time in her dad's Honda Ridgeline. When she got too drunk to drive, she would sleep in the bed of the pickup or on an acquaintance couch. She was far too trusting of people she barely knew. New friends, many of them struggling to support themselves, took advantage of her generosity. Some did worse. What comes next may be triggering for some as the story takes a turn for the worse. As Akira DaCosta's inner demons have been tormenting her for years, an outer source came to change her life forever. At a party that winter, DaCosta told KCRA she met a woman who invited her to stay at her apartment in Sacramento. As Akira left the apartment around 10 one morning in early February, two vehicles pulled in front of her. A man jumped out of one. Two women emerged from the other. Akira remembers the man grabbing her keys while the women forced her into the back seat of the ridgeline. When Akira screamed for help, one of the women pistol whipped her, leaving the cut below her left eye. The man warned her that the woman with the gun would shoot her if she screamed again. 
and the nightmare began. Akira wasn't physically shackled during her three months at a four-bedroom house in Sacramento, but she said she felt enslaved. Her kidnappers had found out where her family lived and promised to kill them if she made trouble. Her kidnapper also took her to the DMV office and he made her change the home address on her driver's license. When her captor wasn't satisfied with the money Akira and three other women were making him on the streets of Sacramento, he drove them up Interstate 5 to walk red light districts in Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. At each stop, Akira said she was forced to wear a blonde wig, tight skirt, and heels. Every here and there, she was able to call her parents from one of her captor's cell phones, speaker on while he stood beside her and listened. The conversations never changed. A few minutes, bland conversation and explanation on being okay. No response to questions about where she was. Her parents, Randolph and Charmaine, told Fox 40 that they suspected something was wrong, but didn't know Akira had been kidnapped. Shortly after she stopped coming home, her parents had filed a missing persons report, only to retract it days later when she assured them she was safe. Even though she had a habit of leaving for days at a time, her father, Randolph, said, quote, as a parent, you can tell when something is amiss with your child. We never stop worrying. Her mother, Charmaine, added, I couldn't sleep. I just kept asking my husband, where is our baby girl? Where is she? End quote. What well, wasn't too far from her parents' home, a typical middle-class neighborhood, Akira was suffering and losing hope. She had contracted sexually transmitted infections. Her kidnapper her kidnapper had burned her with a lighter and pushed her downstairs. She said that when one of the other women disobeyed the men, he had stomped her in the head of the garage concrete and split her face open. Akira and the other women were forced to watch, terrified. The worst part might have been the children, however. Akira said she shared a small bed with another woman and that woman's young daughter who seemed oblivious to the atrocities unfolding around them. One morning in early May, after the man gave his own daughter a black eye, Akira saw the woman cover the child's bruises with makeup. Akira told the San Francisco Chronicle, quote, the little girl said she was going to tell a teacher she had fallen or something. Like she already had an excuse ready. You could tell it wasn't her first time. At that point, I knew I didn't want to live anymore. I couldn't take it, end quote. About an hour later, she was in the living room, fully falling into that dark space, when she heard a familiar voice at the door. It was her dad. He was explaining to one of the other women that he had received parking tickets with the home's address on them. The Ridgeline truck she was driving, the same one the kidnappers snatched her into, was registered in Randolph's name. He said that when Akira's captor was cited for parking illegally on the streets in front of his house. The bills were mailed to the family home in Stockton. Akira, barefoot and in a blonde wig, stepped closer to the front door. The man had already left the house. When Randolph saw her, he asked her what was going on. The other woman walked upstairs, likely going for one of the man's many guns. Randolph, hushed, asked Akira whether she needed to run. When she nodded, he told her his car was parked around the corner. He kept the engine running. Akira sprinted out the front door and climbed into the back seat of her dad's Kia Sedona. 
As the car sped away, Akira broke down in tears. Charmaine was in the passenger seat. All she could do was scream, my baby, my baby, we got my baby. The next day, Akira said she tried to contact the acquaintance she had visited in Sacramento before she was kidnapped. The woman blocked Akira's phone number and social media accounts. That's when Akira had known what the woman had done. As months passed since her escape, Akira has been key in the Sacramento Police Department's investigation into the sex trafficking ring, something they aren't releasing statements about but are currently investigating. Her relationship with her family has strengthened. Her parents not wanting to let her out of their sight. And she is back on the basketball court. A few weeks after her triumphant escape, she joined a pro league in Oakland and garnered interest from professional scouts and is now playing professionally in Sweden. And she isn't wavering in her openness about the ordeal. She hopes that by raising awareness, she can connect with others who have shared experiences and help other survivors. According to the United States Department of State, 24.9 million people are trafficked worldwide at any given time, with young girls and women accounting for more than 70% of victims. In 2020, 10,583 reports involving 16,658 victims were made to the United States National Human Trafficking Hotline, numbers that experts estimate represent a fraction of the actual problem. Fear despair and shame keep many victims from speaking out. Akira DaCosta is not just a statistic, however. She is a daughter, she is a baller, and she is a survivor. That is all I have this week. Thank you for joining me. I will be back next Monday at 3.40 p.m. with another episode of Hoops and Chill with Candace Evans. Enjoy Halloween, make good bets, and above all, Stay safe.